Welcome to Global Dispatches. I am your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this podcast, we discuss topical global issues and we go deep with foreign policy thought leaders and celebrities who discuss their life and career. Last week, a panel of independent experts published an exhaustive and hotly awaited report on the future of UN peacekeeping and proposed reforms. The panel was led by Jose Ramos Horta, the Nobel laureate and former president of East Timor, a country where peacekeeping played a key role in its turbulent early years. The report was a pretty big deal in UN circles, and its release provides a good inflection point to discuss UN peacekeeping, its big challenges, and how some current trends in global security are going to force the UN to adapt. I I think it's quite conceivable that five years from now you will have blue helmets in Libya, Syria, and Yemen simultaneously. All of those Blue Helmet forces will be operating in areas where terrorist groups are active. Uh, It's not possible to continue business as usual peacekeeping in somewhere like Libya or Syria. My guest today, who you just heard from, is Richard Gowen, a columnist at World Politics Review and an editor of the Global Peace Operations Review. He is one of my favorite UN pundits, and I'm thrilled to have him back on the podcast to discuss this report in all things UN peacekeeping. This episode is sponsored by World Politics Review, which provides uncompromising analysis of critical global trends to give policymakers, business people, and academics the context they need to have the confidence they want. The good people at World Politics Review are offering Global Dispatch's podcast listeners a two-week free trial and then a 50% discount on an annual subscription. To redeem this offer, go to about.worldpoliticsreview/dispatches. And I'll also post a link to this offer on globaldispatchespodcast.com. And now here is my conversation with Richard Goen. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. I mean, I'm ready to go if you are. I'm, I'm absolutely ready. I know, you're, you're born ready for conversations about <laughs> UN peacekeeping, right? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I'll probably die during one at some point, but hopefully not this one. <laughs> uh, you and me both, sir. Okay, so can you set the context for this specific report? Over the last two years, there's been a growing sense of concern. You might even say panic in the UN about the state of peacekeeping operations. There have been a series of cases where peacekeepers have come under attack, such as South Sudan and Mali, and the organization has really struggled to respond. So in the middle of 2014, Ban Ki-moon announced he wanted a policy review of the state of all UN peace operations. And I think that what Ban initially envisaged was quite a technical review, focusing on questions about 
how peacekeepers can operate in areas where there is endemic violence and no peace to keep. But the the final report, which came out in June this year, is much broader, and it really talks about the entire spectrum of UN engagement in conflict prevention and conflict management. So, you call this, 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 this is this is this is a, yeah. a, a big report in all senses. I mean, it's more than a hundred pages, and it's conceptually very ambitious. And in a in a column in World Politics Review, you call this report subtly subversive. What do you mean by that? I said that because the the experts who wrote the report, who were sixteen veterans of UN peace operations, didn't confine themselves to technical questions like logistics or administrative problems. They really took on some of the biggest political problems around peace operations, starting with the way the Security Council mandates peace operations. And the report is fairly explicit in saying that the Council is sometimes irresponsible in sending peacekeepers into the field without a clear political strategy and without clear political backup. So that, by UN standards, is subversive. But on top of that, the report is very honest about the fact that some peacekeepers are not pulling their weight, not taking risks to protect civilians, which is bound to offend countries like India, who send a lot of those troops into the field. And the report is also pretty blunt about the way that some governments, like the Sudanese government, uh, make it impossible for peacekeepers to do their jobs in regions like Darfur. So it's subversive in that it's saying that the entire peacekeeping enterprise, the entire enterprise of peace operations, is based on very, very weak political foundations. And that message is very big, it's pretty disturbing, and as I say, it's it's not just a, a technical set of fixes for the Blue Helmets. But there are some technical suggestions in the report, too. Could we talk about those? Maybe I think the best way to do this is talk about a specific example, a specific, perhaps troubled peacekeeping operation, something like maybe the, the Central African Republic that um, combines a lot of the elements of what you were just talking about, a difficult operating environment under-resourced and lacking certain technical capacities to really make the, make the operation as effective as possible. Yes, and it's worth saying that I think there are actually 140 recommendations in the report, so I don't want to give the sense that it, it doesn't address technical issues. It, it's simply that it places these technical issues in in the broader political context. Um, now, we could go down the entire list of 140, uh, but as you say, it's probably better to look at um, how some of the key questions impact on real missions. Um, let's, I mean, if you look at it, the Central African Republic or, or Mali, uh, one of the first problems that is really affecting the UN is getting troops on the ground fast enough and rapid deployment. And this is definitely an operational area where the Peace Operations Panel um, does have something to say. It argues that the UN should have a system of what it calls vanguard contingents in areas uh, with numerous conflicts like West and Central Africa that would be able to deploy very rapidly when it's necessary to set up a new mission or could go in fast to reinforce uh, an existing mission like the one in South Sudan, which came pretty close to collapse in late 2013. 
Um, so the, the current system, though, of how troops are deployed to a mission is sort of, uh, you know, it's not necessarily ad hoc, but it's not the most streamlined process, right? Like you have the Security Council says we need a mission in a place like the Central African Republic, which is on the precipice of genocide, perhaps. Countries contribute troops, but then they have to figure out how, a way to equip and actually transport the troops from, say, Bangladesh to the middle of Africa. And so it's not necessarily the most, most you know, perhaps streamlined process, right? Well, often what happens is that uh, the Security Council uh, comes up with a, a target number for troops uh, without really checking that all the troops are available. And it's then left to the UN Secretariat to scrabble around, reach out to countries and see if they can find um, the military personnel, the police and others uh, that that are required. And the, uh, the UN can usually find the infantry that it needs. There's never a, a big problem about simply finding mm-hmm. basic infantry battalions. And it's but, worth noting that, that the troop contributing countries are compensated for contributing troops on a per troop per month basis. So it's not like they're just donating the troops. It's sort of a, a financial gain in a way. That is correct. Um, but the, the the bigger problem is that the UN also needs to find um, uh, enabling units like engineers, medics, and others uh, who, who can um, make a force function effectively. Uh, there's often a lack of aircraft, a lack of helicopters. And the UN also has to work out how to build camps in sometimes extremely complex terrain like the Central African Republic or Mali uh, so that the troops can actually deploy and have well-functioning bases. Now, this can take a very, very long time indeed, uh, just setting up camps in places such as Mali and Darfur can go on for months on end. So even if the UN has commitments of troops ready and waiting, it isn't always able to deploy them into the areas that it wants them to go. And even if it has infantry that it is able to get on the ground, they may lack mobility, Uh, they often lack specialized equipment such as um, counter IED equipment for operating in areas where there might be roadside bombs. And so what happens is that forces deploy extremely slowly and that affects their credibility from the very beginning of their operations. And if you go through the the panel report, you'll find uh, that the panel does try and resolve various parts of um, this problem, as I say, arguing that the UN should have um, uh, vanguard contingents, which would be units that are are ready to deploy at very short notice to to speed up speed up missions, and it also makes a number of much more technical suggestions around UN procurement practices and uh, the rules uh, for getting UN kit on the ground, uh, which are intended to remove some of the administrative blocks to rapid deployments too. So that's just getting troops on the ground quickly is only part of the problem the UN faces, but it is something that the report highlights. But the report does not make the recommendation that the UN have a standing contingent of blue helmets. Is that right? Which presumably would solve some of these rapid deployment problems. No, it doesn't go that far. That's something which is politically, uh, frankly, impossible uh, right now. The report does rather mischievously suggest that 
uh, all the permanent members of the Security Council, including the U.S., should uh, send more troops on on UN missions. It's worth keeping in mind that the U.S. still has fewer than a hundred uniformed personnel uh, in all UN missions worldwide. Uh, but the report is the report is overall it's realistic. You're not going to have a UN army. The best you can hope for is a um, a, a smoother process um, in terms of uh, developing a mandate, finding the troops, and providing the equipment and, and, and kit necessary to get them on the ground. Um, so one trend that has been evolving uh, over the last several years in which it seems the UN peacekeeping uh, department has been slow to respond to effectively has been the advent or, or the presence of Al-Qaeda and ISIS-inspired groups or Al-Qaeda and ISIS directly themselves in peacekeeping operations. I mean, the UN has never really before had to deal directly with the threat of terrorist groups in their operations. I know it's something that you've been writing about recently. How does this report or how do you see the UN responding to like evolving threat environments in places like Somalia or, or Mali or elsewhere? There are currently two missions which are facing uh, really significant terrorist threats. Uh, one is the operation on Golan Heights, uh, which uh, has almost completely closed down, actually, over the last uh, couple of years because uh, Islamist extremists um, involved in the Syrian civil war have repeatedly kidnapped uh, UN personnel. Mm -hmm. Like whole and, contingents of UN personnel. Yeah, I mean, up to 40 to 50 at a time. Uh, the other case, actually, an even worse case, is Mali, where um, al-Qaeda and its affiliates have targeted the UN force that deployed in, in mid-2013, and you've had a series of um, ambushes, attacks on convoys uh, that have claimed dozens of peacekeepers' lives uh, in, in northern Mali um, without, frankly, getting, I think, sufficient media attention. So UN officials are, are looking at these cases, and they, they fear that they may just be the prologue to even more risky peace operations in places like Libya or perhaps even Syria itself. And the overall feeling inside UN headquarters is that the Blue Helmets just cannot handle uh, this sort of terrorist threat. And that's a view that the, the panel report echoes very strongly. It says that uh, UN missions lack the training, lack the equipment uh, to handle counter-terrorist operations, and that actually that should be a red line. The, the UN should not do, uh, do counter-terrorism. Now, it's very easy to say that on paper. Uh, the problem is, is that when the Security Council is faced with a situation like Mali, or potentially in future Libya, it, it doesn't take those red lines seriously if it feels that the only possible answer to um, a crisis is, is putting in peacekeepers, it will do so. And so I think it's important that the UN should be realistic about the fact that it will be sending more troops into places plagued by violent extremism, and they will need to be robust enough and well-armed enough um, and have the necessary doctrines to, to face those threats. Now, 
if you go through the panel report, a lot of the recommendations it makes around things like rapid deployment, which we've touched on already, or the use of force by peacekeepers um, are relevant to, uh, to dealing with, with terrorist threats. So if there is a big push to sort of strengthen the UN systems to give peacekeepers better protection, uh, that will already be a big step forward. But it will remain an immensely painful I think, ethical and strategic question as to whether peacekeepers should be going up against al-Qaeda at all. I guess this brings up one sort of really overarching challenge, not just for the UN, but for the entire international system, right? Which is that, you know, you have this focus of conflict right now in the Middle East, uh, in Yemen, in Syria, in Libya, in which violent extremists are playing, you know, a, a key role in, in the conflict, Yet the way in which the international community over the last two decades, really since the end of the Cold War, has sought to end civil wars is by including some UN role, uh, whether it's through peacekeeping or UN mediation in, in some way. But here you have groups that are just intrinsically and ideologically opposed to the UN. It's, in, it's interesting, though, that the panel, which also covers mediation and covers a lot of political issues in, ad in addition to the, um, uh, the military matters we've been talking about, actually says it's very important that the UN should retain the ability to talk to anyone. Uh, if you look at the, the makeup of uh, the experts who wrote this report for Ban Ki-moon, uh, they contain an unusually large number of people with a deep knowledge of mediation. And one one of the messages in the report is that you've got to give mediation and you've got to give political processes a chance, and that actually that may mean talking to groups that we would otherwise write off as, as terrorists. I think there is a general recognition that no one can talk to the Islamic State and that it would be stupid to imagine that UN mediators uh, could strike a political bargain with the Islamic State. But the authors of the report do suggest that there are a lot of cases where extremist groups, in inverted commas, can be engaged with, even if it is uh, an unpleasant and, and difficult process. So a, a lot of the report deals, as I say, with the military aspects of, of dealing with major threats, but uh, there is also this emphasis on uh, political engagement as a way of trying to cut through the incredibly complex conflicts that are uh, escalating in the Middle East and North Africa. I wanted to uh, ask you also about the recent sexual abuse allegations that have been leveled against not just UN peacekeepers, but also French military forces serving alongside, though not a part of, the UN peacekeeping mission in the Central African Republic. Previously, I had chalked it up to the fact that a lot of UN peacekeepers come from countries that don't have necessarily the most sophisticated militaries or even a really deeply embedded culture of, of a rule of law. Like most peacekeeping troops come from the developing world. Um, but then you have this instance of French forces, again, not part of the UN peacekeeping mission, but working alongside it, who are accused of pretty horrible things like exchanging you know, sex for food, um, rape, essentially, like raping little children. I guess, do you see this as a trend? Do, I mean, is sexual abuse, you think, endemic, uh, an endemic problem of UN peacekeeping? Or I think 
tragically, sexual abuse is an endemic problem wherever you have soldiers put into highly anarchic environments. And I, I have to say, if you look at the Central African Republic, I guess that the peacekeepers who deployed from France and from some neighboring African countries simply thought there was absolutely no accountability there. There was no government. You essentially had seen a country break down. And for some depraved individuals in the peacekeeping forces, uh, it probably looked like this was uh, an area where they could do anything and abuse anyone and, and get away with it. And, you know, you can go back throughout military history and you will find uh, examples of that. I'm not trying to excuse it, but I think it's a tragic reality. What's depressing is that there's also a lot of evidence that even in places where UN peacekeeping is working and you have uh, increasing stability and some progress towards uh, creating normal rule of law conditions, peacekeepers continue to commit abuse. So uh, last month, a report came out that emphasized abuse in Haiti and Liberia. Now, Haiti and Liberia are broadly speaking two success stories for the UN. They're, they're countries where peacekeeping has delivered. And it's really horrible to, to see that even in those countries that are largely stable, um, abuse by peacekeepers uh, continues. Is I think that I think that there probably are some militaries uh, that um, where there's a sort of a cultural assumption that um, uh, you know peacekeeping and sexual abuse go together. Um, peacekeeping is sex tourism, as it were. Uh, the UN is doing its best to crack down on this, but the problem is is that the UN's own ability to discipline troops is very limited. It can send troops home, but it doesn't really know what happens to those soldiers once they get back to their, their home countries. Mm -hmm. So, I and that I, seems I, I to be a problem I, I, that will be, continue yeah. to be with us. And 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 the 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 sort of system of accountability that you describe is one in which you know the UN has the ability to repatriate soldiers to their country, but it does not have the uh, ability to force those countries to to launch criminal prosecutions, right? It doesn't have that kind of power. The UN just doesn't, can't tell the USA or India to criminally prosecute someone it uh, repatriated. So it seems its ability to follow up on any accountability mechanism is pretty limited. And I remember reading the Zaid report of several years back. For those who are not aware, Prince Zaid uh, Rad Al Hussein, currently the top UN human rights official, um, several years ago wrote a pretty impressive report outlining the challenges of criminal accountability of uh, peacekeepers who engage in sexual abuse. And there there are some remedies like court martials in the field um, and other sort of potential remedies, but it basically comes down to the fact that UN member states don't want to hand over their ability to prosecute their own citizens or soldiers to any sort of international panel. Yeah, and the, uh, you know, the new report on peace operations makes uh, a series of suggestions about zero tolerance um, towards abuse. But I, I fear that there's a, and there is a degree of cynicism around um, the issue now uh, in the UN and in, in the field, that 
everyone is is very willing to come and make strong statements um, in New York about how dreadful this all is. But uh, the Zade report was 10 years ago, and a, a, a lot of the recommendations that it made have, have not been fulfilled. And I fear that um, a lot of current recommendations about addressing the issue may may not be fulfilled. Okay, so uh, in our last remaining moments, what what's next for you in peacekeeping in your mind? Will they continue to to muddle through? Uh, you know, on balance, I think not on balance. It's it's indisputable that UN peacekeeping has contributed to generally increasing levels of peace and security around the world and places where they have deployed. You know, and there are lots of success stories, like you said, like like all most of Western Africa, from Sierra Leone to Liberia, Cote d'Ivoire, are places that 15 years ago were among the most horrible scenes of human rights abuses and of conflict in the world. And now, thanks largely to UN peacekeeping uh, and international intervention, they are more or less stable. Um, currently, it seems that the locus of, of challenges to UN peacekeeping is pretty much in, in the Horn of Africa and Sudan, South Sudan, um, perhaps the Central African Republic and, and Somalia. 15, 20 years from now, do you think we'll look back and consider those to be uh, UN peacekeeping success stories in the same way that we consider West Africa to be UN peacekeeping success stories? Well, I think it's worth saying that you know, there's still a lot of work to be done consolidating peace and sustaining peace, even in countries like Liberia and Cote d'Ivoire, which do seem to be on the right track. And you ask what um, what's next for the UN. One, one of the challenges that lies ahead for the UN is just sticking with with places like Liberia, especially after the Ebola crisis, and continuing the long grinding work of building functioning states. But you're also right to say that uh, the sort of the biggest tests for the UN today do now seem to be in Sudan, South Sudan, and uh, potentially in Somalia, where you currently have African Union troops, but you might one day have, have UN troops. I think that those massive peacekeeping projects are going to, at best, make very, very slow progress. In South Sudan, uh, the state has now almost completely collapsed into civil war, and even getting a peace deal that could act as the starting point uh, for reconstructing South Sudan seems out of reach. So I think that's going to be a, a decades-long reconstruction um, process, which may suck up a huge amount of, of UN time and energy. Uh, Somalia is overall heading in a slightly more positive direction, but as the, the murder of, uh, of 30 or more AU peacekeepers um, reminded us last week, it's also going to be an incredibly long um, process to, to build even sort of minimally sustainable peace in Somalia. So those are, those are two long-term tasks. I, I fear that uh, the other case in the Sudan's um, Darfur is probably a lost cause for the UN. I, I think that actually the Sudanese government will eventually succeed in pushing the UN out of Darfur, and that will be seen as a, uh, a huge failure for the organization. But in addition to those big missions and big challenges, we also have to be conscious that uh, in Syria, in Libya, potentially in Yemen, you have countries that are in the state in a state of total conflict and may need uh, 
peace operations and even UN peace operations uh, to come and stabilize them in the years ahead. And it is possible that there will be a real pivot in terms of peace operations away from Africa and and African missions to the Arab world uh, as the the international community looks for ways to to end the conflicts uh, that emanated from the Arab Spring. I, I think it's quite conceivable that five years from now you will have blue helmets in Libya, Syria, and Yemen simultaneously. But coming back to something we were touching on earlier, all of those blue helmet forces will be operating in areas where terrorist groups are active. Uh, it's not possible to continue business as usual peacekeeping in somewhere like Libya or Syria. And so this will create a lot of pressure to fix the technical problems that the high-level panel review has identified and make peace operations more robust. That will cost money. Um, that will require very, very difficult negotiations with the countries that actually send troops and, and take the risks. But it may be a strategic necessity. All right. Well, Richard, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. All right. Thank you all. Thank you to Richard. Thank you very much to World Politics Review. Do redeem that offer or at least check out their offerings. It is a great, great website. Very useful and very relevant to uh, this audience. I have some great interviews lined up in the month of July, so be sure to subscribe to Global Dispatches Podcast. Just go to globaldispatchespodcast.com or find us on iTunes or the App Store and subscribe. We'll see you there. Thanks so much. Bye.